and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Dr. Reed Krell, an instructor in the University of Alabama Department of Political Science. We will discuss his article, The Power of Jury Instructions, Evidence from EEOC Cases. So welcome to the show, Reed. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, uh, Brian. It's, it's great to be here. I should warn you, I'm uh, talking to you from my, my home, and so we may get interrupted by one or more cats. Not a problem. My, my cat has been locked out, but, um, but w- w- there are more than, one, more than one episode has featured some meowing in the background, so um, that's <laughs> totally par for the course. Um, so I'm really glad to have you on the show, Reed, because I really found this paper um, fascinating, really well done, and weirdly counterintuitive in a way that, that I really like. Um, but I think for listeners to understand why that is, they need to understand a little bit of the background of what you're talking about. So, I mean, I wonder if you could talk about sort of what jury instructions are, where they come from, and sort of what role they play in civil litigation. Yeah. So jury instructions are more or less exactly what it says on the 10, right? They are instructions to the jury on how a jury should uh, analyze the evidence that's been presented to them. So, um, you know, we're all familiar with the concept of a jury trial being preserved under the Seventh Amendment. Um, Not going to go down the rabbit hole of what that means, but right, we know that in civil litigation, you have the right to ask for a trial in front of a jury uh, as opposed to a trial in front of a judge under certain circumstances. When you're in front of a jury, that's, you know, to be somewhat flippant, a friend of mine likes to say that, you know, a trial by jury consists of a trial in front of 12 people too dumb to get out of jury duty. Um, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that, but it, it sort of captures, I think, the problem that you're dealing with a bunch of people who don't know anything about your case. In fact, if someone shows up who does know about your case, they may get thrown out, right? We want, for whatever reason, we want juries that are blank slates when they when they show up. And so they have to be told how to decide the case. And that's what jury instructions do, is they are mechanisms whereby the court tells the jury what the law is. And they'll say, you know, in order to find for the plaintiff, you have to find that the plaintiff has proved X, Y, and Z, right? And what that what that X, Y, and Z is differs from case to case. It's specific to the types of claim that you're you're presenting. Um, jury instructions are usually created very late in the process, you know right on the eve of trial, and there's usually an attempt by the the parties to try and reach some sort of agreement on at least some instructions, but frequently there isn't uh, agreement, I mean. They certainly try. And the judge has to decide what the right jury instruction is, what is a correct statement of law. In order to make this easy, a lot of jurisdictions, both states and federal uh, courts of appeals 
publish books of model jury instructions that can be used across any type of case that fits where that issue arises. So you may have uh, you may have an instruction related to what is and is not evidence, right? That's going to be an issue in almost every case. Lawyer statements aren't evidence, and so there's a model instruction for that issue. Um, you may have an issue related to the standard of care, like in a medical malpractice case. Um, there may be a model instruction as to what is the standard of care in these types of cases. And if a judge gives the model instruction, whatever the verdict is can't be reversed on the basis of that instruction. Model instructions are correct statements of the law. They've been approved by the appropriate reviewing court. Um, but sometimes judges deviate from those model instructions. And really what I'm looking at is what are the incentives and the pressures that might lead litigants to push for deviations from model instructions and for judges to grant them. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> in your paper, you recognize that there's been some limited previous scholarship on jury instructions in the same sort of empirical vein that that you're proceeding on. But but your perspective or the the sort of the thesis of your paper seems really different from some of that other work or you're you're asking really different questions. I wonder if you could just briefly sort of talk a little bit about the state of the field and sort of how your intervention differs from what other scholars have done. Yeah. Um you know I am really hesitant to say that there's nothing out there that's investigating the same thing that I'm investigating because that's a really great way to have someone come along and go, oh no, there's this whole scholarly community that you completely missed. Um, but what I will say is that I can't find any scholarship that is asking the question that I'm asking. When people look at, when scholars look at jury instructions, um, they look at how those jury instructions affect the jury. And that's a really important question for us to, to sort of wrap our heads around because the jury is sort of the target audience for those instructions. But a lot of what I find is that there's some argument over the jury instructions proceeding and then the case settles. So there's something in these instructions that's communicating something actually to the litigants. And that's where my interest lies, is in the communication between the disputing parties and the court as to sort of how to evaluate the case and how to try and negotiate a settlement out of the case. And that's the piece of the puzzle that I can't find any prior work on. Mm. So maybe you could sort of talk a little bit about why the sort of negotiation over and decision of what the jury instructions should look like are such a sort of unique moment in a civil trial. Uh, and sort of because of that, what what kind of information might they communicate or how might 
the the jury instructions once promulgated uh, affect the incentives of the parties? Yeah. So when we when we look at the litigation process, um, there's sort of two major models that talk about how the parties kind of uh, reach a a uh, a conclusion as to how the case ought to ought to resolve. One is that one party has some information that the other one doesn't, right? And that's called perhaps somewhat obviously an asymmetric information model. The other model is that they have the same set of information, but they evaluate it differently. Okay, and so they look at the at the facts and the law that are relevant to the case and they and the defendant goes I think I've got a 40% chance of winning and so I'm going to settle based on how I calculate the damages with a 40% discount and the plaintiff looks at the facts in the law and says I have a 20% chance of winning I'm sorry an 80% chance of winning and so I'm going to uh negotiate a settlement based on my calculation of damages at a 20% discount. So the idea is that based on how likely they think they are to win, plaintiffs and defendants are willing to settle at a at a discount based on what they what they think the value of the case is and the likelihood of victory. The point of jury instructions is that this is an opportunity for the court to shape those expectations by saying this is how we describe the law and so the lawyers in the case are able to take those statements of law and use them to say okay based on this this is how the jury is going to evaluate the evidence that we know is going to be important and that's going to change our view of what we think our likelihood of victory is and that's that's essentially the basic theory that I'm working under is that uh, these guys are able to take the information that's coming out of the court and use it to update their priors. And I, that's, a, that's a, an important term that I use, um, although I didn't do it in the larger project that this is a piece of, this project is probably going in the direction of um, a Bayesian analysis where you take past information and you use new information to change your evaluation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it strictly is one of the ironies of the perspective you're taking on jury instructions is that in a way, they're communicating at least as much, if not more information to the lawyers than they are to the members of the jury. That's that's absolutely right. I think that, you know, if we look at the prior literature, looking at how juries evaluate their jury instructions, what we see is an awful lot of work that suggests that they don't really understand what they're being told. Um, and the dangerous part of it is that if you ask them uh, how well they understand the instructions, the juries think they've got it down cold. <laughs> It's like Dunning Dunning Kruger for the win, huh? Right, you know, and so you know, we're we're faced with a situation where um, the people who 
are supposed to understand this stuff don't, but think that they do and are using it to resolve these disputes and engage in authoritative distribution of resources. And so I don't think it, I think it makes a lot of sense for us to look at jury instructions and go, well, what do the litigants think about this? Because if you get a jury instruction and you look at it and you go, 12 knuckleheads from rural wherever are not going to understand this, you're going to be really interested in making sure they never get a chance to misunderstand. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. So the paper's based on an empirical study, which has a lot of interesting factors and facets built into it. So I mean, I wonder if you could describe the study a little bit. Where was, what, you know, what was the data set? Um, where and how did you get the data? Sure. So this, this project is part of my, my larger dissertation, which relies on data from the EEOC litigation project. And the EEOC litigation project is this fantastic data source that was compiled by, excuse me, um, Pauline Kim, Margot Schlanger, and Andrew Martin at Washington University in St. Louis. And I cannot praise them enough for having the the foresight and the uh, capacity to build out this data set and to convince the National Science Foundation to fund it, um, to allow them to to compile it. Uh, So that this is a fantastic data set for anybody who's studying trial courts and trial court litigation processes. But it's missing a couple of pieces of the puzzle. Specifically for this project, it doesn't have anything about jury instruction proceedings. So what I did was I I reached out to 93 of the 94 district courts because there's one district court I think the U.S. Virgin Islands that has no cases in the data set. And I asked the chief judges of all of those courts to grant me fee waivers to allow me to access PACER documents for free. And um, I used those fee waivers to download documents related to the cases that were already in the data set. So the goal was to extend the data set with some additional variables. And unfortunately, you know, there were a lot of courts that didn't respond to the requests for waivers. There were some that denied them. Um, There were courts that granted the waivers, but there weren't any cases where I could download documents that were helpful for the things I wanted to add. So what I wind up with is 80 jury instructions documents across 30 cases that are in six different courts in six different states. And it's uh, five cases from Florida, three from Arizona, and then one each from four other states. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so it's a little bit of a, uh, of a, uh, uh, a tangent, but I hadn't heard of this waiver program before. I mean, how well did that work? What what sort of response rate did you get? And like, 
to what extent were courts open to providing these kinds of waivers? Because this seems like this seems like data they ought to want you to have. You're doing work for them. Yeah. Um, so there's a few courts that just explicitly have policies of not granting these waivers. These are waivers that are authorized but not required by the regulations that implement PACER um, from the Administrative Office of Courts. So it's up to a chief judge's discretion whether they want to grant these. And so like I had, I remember immediately after I sent um, my waiver requests, I got an email personally from the chief judge of the Western District of Louisiana who was confused and thought I was asking them to waive uh, fees for all the district courts in the country. I was like, I'm not sure I have the authority to do that. And I had to email them back and say, no, Your Honor, that's not what I'm asking you to do. I've asked all the other judges that are relevant to deal with this. And then in Delaware, they just flat denied my request uh, from the clerk's office, not from the chief judge's chambers. And when I called the clerk to kind of clarify what was going on because they the denial letter talked in terms of we can't give you a PACER login. I said, well, that's not what I'm looking for. I have a PACER account. I just need you to contact the service center and uh, give me a fee waiver. It turned out that a couple of years ago, a scholar who had been given a fee waiver in Delaware had uh, implemented a document search um, that was so burdensome that it crashed the filing system. <laughs> right at a point when every lawyer who, you know, it, you know, this was a, a time when uh, it was like an end of the month or end of a quarter where every lawyer is trying to file something uh, and suddenly the system just goes dead. And so Delaware had implemented an entire policy of we do not grant these waivers anymore. <laughs> um, you know, so the, those sorts of things absolutely happened. A lot more frequently, what happened was I just never heard back. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was a broke graduate student. And so silence was a no because I couldn't afford to go in and find out if I was getting charged. Um, but I think I, I got fee waivers from about 35 to 40 different district courts. And some of them wound up not being helpful because, like I said, there weren't any downloadable documents in the cases that I was looking at. Um, and some of them wound up being extremely helpful. Um, and I have all of the documents that I downloaded um, in a private cloud server but I can't publish the documents because part of the uh, terms under which these fee waivers are granted includes an order from the court directing me not to republish these documents. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, as, as response rates go, 40 to 50% isn't terrible. No, not at all. I'm, I'm very pleased by how, how that panned out. Awesome. Well, maybe you could describe some of the findings from the study, at least, you know, and I'm not a, a, 
and a stats person, but my sense was that there were like some limited quantitative findings and then some much more robust qualitative findings. Well, is that right? Um, I would not, I would not describe this as any sort of quantitative findings. Um, because frankly, there just aren't enough observations for any sort of, of hypothesis testing. What I can say is that I can, I can give you some descriptive statistics. Um, and that's basically that uh, what we find you know, in, in the descriptive statistics is that for the most part, courts aren't paying a whole lot of attention to what the parties are arguing over in uh, in these jury instructions proceedings. A lot of what we saw, or what I saw, sorry, I don't have any co-authors, what I saw, uh, a lot of what I saw was uh, courts basically building instructions themselves. So if if the parties couldn't reach an agreement, the court would sort of craft its own instruction. And that was far more common than anything else. And frankly, what I saw was a lot of uh, situations where things that were presented to the court sort of got ignored. Um, and I can't, you know, because of the limits on the data, I can't tell if what's happening is these sorts of boilerplate, uh, you know, basic lead-off types of instructions, things like what is and is not evidence, um, whether the judges are giving those instructions to the jury, but just not putting them in the orders where they list out the instructions, or whether they're just not giving those instructions. Does that, I, I don't know if that makes any sense at all. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, from a kind of descriptive or qualitative standpoint, were there sort of some kinds of instructions that were more salient to litigants and some kinds that were less salient? And sort of how did how did you sort of to what extent could you sort of model or understand kind of litigant incentives and litigant behavior in relation to the data that you were able to generate? So, basically what I what I do is I, I say, okay, we don't really know how uh, how litigants see these jury instructions, so let's sort of think off of first principles. And we have this model with a decision maker and sort of disputing advisors, and that model comes out of the public policy literature, and it's not worth sort of going too far down the, the rabbit hole. But basically where it comes out in terms of conclusions is that you're trying to balance how likely you are to be reversed if you win with how much greater the probability of victory is. And so that's, that determines how parties contest these jury instructions is they're trying to, to, to balance the risk of reversal with the reward of victory. And so in order to, to get down into that, what I find is that we sort of, the parties kind of set aside things that don't have, that don't affect, affect the outcome of the case. Things like, you know, 
what is evidence? Um, what does it mean if depositions are read into the record? You know, what's the, the role of the jury in all of this? You know, things like things like that. And I call those procedural instructions that are just sort of laying the groundwork for ladies and gentlemen of the jury. This is what you expe can expect in this process. The parties are much more likely to contest what I call merits instructions, which are things which relate to issues that they're actually litigating and disputing. Okay, so all of the cases in this data set are EEOC agency enforcement actions. So they're all Title VII, ADA, Age Discrimination, and Equal Pay Act. Um, and so you, you got a lot of things about what are the elements of a sexual harassment claim, you know, and conversely, what are the elements that an employer has to prove to put on the Ellerth defense of uh, remediation policies, right? What do you have to prove to demonstrate a failure to accommodate claim under the ADA, you know, and those are the issues that the parties contest. And I find some evidence, and I don't want to oversell it, um, but there's some evidence that suggests that if a court sides more with one side over the other in contesting merits instructions, that there's a possibility that the jury may find for that particular side. Mm -hmm. So in, in your paper, you give kind of three representative examples of sort of how this played out in practice. And I found those really kind of illuminating and helpful in kind of understanding some of the insights and arguments in the article. I wonder if you could just briefly kind of walk through what those are and what they show. Sure. Um, I started off, I focused on the cases out of Florida and I chose these cases um, because there was a defense verdict, a plaintiff's verdict, and a settlement among all three of them. And the paper kind of talks about the methodological concerns related to selecting on the dependent variable. You know, if your listeners are interested in that, please read the paper. Um, but uh, basically, I've got a case where um, where the parties argued over everything, it seemed like. That's the, the Rio Bravo case. And at the end of the day, the court adopted most of the defendant's instructions on the procedural issues and adopted the plaintiff's instructions on the merits issues. And uh, I apologize in advance. There's a thunderstorm going overhead, so if uh, if you're hearing cracks and booms, that's why. So the the court sides with the plaintiff on the merits issues, and then um, the jury awards over three hundred thousand dollars per uh, employee. And then we have this this case where the judge sort of mishmashes a lot of stuff. And that's the, the Pacino's case. Um, and there's not really a, a clear winner 
on the merit side. And the parties actually reached some agreement on some issues, but they contested a lot of things. And uh, that case settled. So we don't have a clear winner in the jury instructions process. The parties kind of look at the jury instructions, I surmise, and they go, we don't know how this is going to come out. Let's settle rather than run the risk of uh, losing. And then the last case that I have is the FLTVT case where the judge basically sides with the defendant on everything. And at the end of that case, the jury rules in favor of the defendant. And that, uh, that to me is the, that narrative is what sort of informs the, uh, the empirical conclusion that I'm suggesting at the end of, of the paper, it may be appropriate to test further. Um, I don't, you know, one of the things that I think divides political scientists and the legal academy is, you know, in the legal academy, you know, these, these three case studies, you know, there are people out there who would say, you've proven your theory. In political science, um, this is the, this approach is taken as suggestive rather than conclusive. Um, and I, and this is a, a conversation I've had on, on several occasions. Yeah, no, no. It seems like it's at least consistent with your, your, with your thesis, but maybe there are alternative explanations as well. And you just maybe don't have enough data yet to say conclusively what the, what the meaning of the evidence is. That's, that's exactly how, uh, how political scientists would talk about it. And I mean, I've, I've, I've had this conversation with law professors on numerous occasions. They say, you know, I don't, I don't need statistics. I've seen it happen. I know it happens. And that's, that's enough to prove to me that it happens. And so it's just, it's a different method of generating knowledge. Mm -hmm. Well, so Reed, in, in closing, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how this project fit into the broader dissertation project of which it's a part, and also sort of where you see this particular project going in the future. Because it seems like a really kind of provocative new way of looking at jury instructions with seemingly a lot of promise for, you know, kind of potential future uh, studies and interventions. Absolutely. Um, so in terms of the dissertation, the idea behind the dissertation was that we would look at several different litigation phases and see how does the way that the parties contest those phases affect whether the case settles and how much plaintiffs get at the end of the case. Um, one of the strengths of the EEOC litigation project is that the federal government has a presumption of settling in cases in public. And so a lot of people who study trial courts sort of lament the fact that most settlements are confidential, and this creates concerns that when we look at outcomes, we don't know if what we have is a representative sample. But with this data, um, with very few exceptions, 
even if the case settles, I know how much the plaintiff got at the end of the case. And so I'm able to actually compare payouts between cases that settle and cases that go all the way to a verdict. Um, and so I look at how pleadings affect that, those different sorts of outcomes. I look at motion practice. I look at um, summary judgment specifically, and I look at jury instructions. Um, and that's and and the findings are a little all over the place. They're uh, difficult to sort of sum up in one or two sentences, but the best I can come up with is that there seem to be a couple of breakpoints for settlement, places where the case is likely to settle. Um, and then there are some case characteristics that tend to increase payouts. And a lot of them are things that um, I think are sort of intuitive, right? Cases with more plaintiffs have higher payouts. Um, cases involving higher status employees get higher payouts because there's more back pay at issue, you know, those sorts of things that um, don't necessarily uh, surprise us that much. And as far as where I'm going to take the project in the future, um, I've identified six different pieces that I think can be mined as articles, including this one. Um, and then I've actually had a, a little bit of interest um, from book publishers related to this article in particular. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know yet if the publishers are interested in the project that's already done, or if they're interested in a new project that's focused specifically on jury instructions. So we'll kind of see uh, how those meetings go. I've got one scheduled this weekend at the uh, American Political Science Association. Great. Well, I mean, it sounds really exciting and uh, I can't wait to see what you produce next on this project. And thanks so much for coming on the show, Reed. Well, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> Quiet, Quiet please. please. Recording. Go again. I found a way to cook. Take two. I found a way to cook extra. Come on over and, and try my crispy. It's entirely different, and yet it's just as tender and tasty. No, and it's just as finger licking good. You see, I found a way to cook chicken deep down and get that real crispy crust that some folks like, and it's just as tender and juicy. And I'll get it now. I I found a way to cook chicken deep down and get that. Crispy, uh, real crispy chick crust. Yeah, yet it's entirely different. No, no. This will be Wild Lines 30, take one. And now you have two kinds of Kentucky Fried Chicken. He said cut it. Go ahead. Go ahead. And, and, and now you have two kinds of Kentucky Fried Chicken to choose from. Yet tender and juicy. I said it, yeah. That's all I said. It's better. Take two. Colonel, if you read it. Okay, we're recording. Now you have two. Now you have two kinds of Kentucky Fried Chicken to choose from. My regular recipe. Take three. It's entirely different. It's entirely different. But every bit. Yes. 
Now you have yourself. Now you have. Now you have two kinds of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Let me get that scratched off of there and quit looking at it. Quiet, please. That yeah, real crusty, real what? What kind of damn crispy? Crispy crust. It's really, di- <clears throat> it's really different. Now you can have two kinds of Kentucky Fried Chicken to choose from: my regular recipe and my new extra crisp. Crispy. You extra crispy. I thought I said that. <clears throat> now you have two kinds of Kentucky Fried Chicken to choose from. It's entirely different. Had every bit of his finger licking good, you see. No, every bit of his finger licking good. You see, I found a way to cook chicken deep down to get that real crispy crust some folks like. I better do that again, honey. Yes, I You don't want me to sing, do you, for Christ's sake? We're rolling. This is the good one. Take five. Most, most folks, most, most folks, uh, most, most, most folks. All right, once again. Uh, most most folks have heard about. All right, that's good. Good, very nice. That's why folks call it finger. That's why folks call it finger. Why that? No. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. That's why folks call it, call it finger licking good. That's oh, yeah. that's that's why that's why folks call it that's why folks call it finger licking good. That's why that's why folks call it finger licking good. I'm not getting anywhere with this damn thing. Okay, fine. 